Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with spiritually awakening people and discussions about spiritual topics. I've been doing this for, this will be the, our 10th anniversary in the fall, and uh, there are nearly 500 of these. And so if, if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com and look under the past interviews menu where you'll see all the previous ones categorized and organized in various ways. This program is made possible by the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and feel like supporting it um, to any amount, there is a PayPal button on every page of the site and also a page suggesting other ways of doing it without PayPal if you don't like PayPal. My guest today is an old friend of Irene and mine named Prasanan. We first met Prasanan about 20 years ago at an AMA event in Chicago, I believe, when we first met him, and um, had seen him over the years many times since then, and have stayed in touch with him even in between those events uh, all, all this time um, for reasons that we're about to explain in this interview, uh, which will be about the Vedic science or, or di discipline of Jyotish, which is the Sanskrit word for astrology. Prasanna had a fascination for astronomy from an early age. In fact, there's a picture of him when he was 15 years old on his website in his bedroom with all these astronomy posters on the wall. Um, and he built his own telescope and spent his teenage years studying the stars and planets. He was the president of the astronomy and photography clubs in high school. He always understood that what we see is only a tiny portion of the totality. And obviously that has meaning in various other realms other than astronomy. In 1987, he attended a retreat which resulted in a spiritual awakening, leading him to conclude that he had always been on a spiritual path. As a result, he adopted a celibate brahmacharya lifestyle. Can you say a word or two about that spiritual awakening before we move on? Yeah, it was a it was a, like a, an intensive retreat uh, for four days, and um, basically it was a, like a silent retreat with um, with controlled communication, like back and forth communication. And um, it was the purpose of it is just to really to get out of the mind, mm -hmm. and uh, some it worked. Teaching. <laughs> it was it's the the person who designed the technique wasn't around, but it was okay. like it was that was being you know. Hmm offered and, and so you got out of the mind what what did you actually experience I, absolute unity with everything um you know i like i'm looking around and i'm seeing only myself and the universe is smiling at me from all directions <laughs> nice sounds good okay so that um caused you to shift gears a bit in your life yeah definitely yeah <laughs> big change yeah all right so then you went on to study the teachings of Ramakrishna Paramahansa, Ramana Maharshi, and Swami Shivananda. And then you heard yeah. about Mata heard about Amma, Mai, uh, Amma. Right. and you met yeah. her during the, her 1990 North American That's tour. That's right. She came to Vancouver that year. Yeah, that was pretty early in the game. She'd only yeah. been touring for yeah. about three years at that point. Right. Yeah. yeah. Okay, and so that, at that time you held a senior management position in corporate finance. Sounds exciting. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't know about that. Yeah. Uh, okay, I'm reading from your bio, obviously, but I'm changing the pronouns a little bit as we go. Um, so you had a natural motivation towards engaging in selfless service, seva, and um, that's what the word seva means, helping others out yeah. of compassion without a conscious thought of receiving personal benefit. 
You moved to Amma's ashram, Amritapuri, in India in 1992, and on arriving you were placed in charge of the computer room and developed a, a new accounting system, and you trained the brahmacharis, the monks, in its use. At the same time, uh, a Jyotish software program was acquired, which you became responsible for, and at Amma's direction you began the practice of Jyotish, which continues to this day. And it's basically your full-time profession, isn't it? Yeah, that's yeah. what I do. Yeah. Good. Um, you traveled around the world with Amma, which is where we first met you, um, providing Jyotish interpretations during her programs, and at other times conducted sessions in India, raising funds for Amma's charities. After 19 years in India, you returned to Canada, established your independent Jyotish practice, and um, after more than two decades of Brahmacharya, you married Maya, the love of your life. I've met Maya, she's a lovely person. You have consulted with more than 60,000 clients throughout the world, and you answer questions about all areas of life, material, familial, health, and well-being, as well as spiritual. Good. <laughs> Marshi used to talk about some, the development of something called Jyotish Mati Pragya that you would get after you did enough Jyotish right. readings. Have, uh, can you define yeah. what that means and have you developed any of that? I think there's a there's an element of that where um, they say the, the Jyotir Vidya, you know, whispers in your ear. What's the Jyotir Vidya? Like the, the pure knowledge, right? Pure knowledge of light is like whispers in your ear. And the Jyotir Vidya is you could say it's like the deity of Jyotish or the deity of light. Jyotish means light. Mm -hmm. And Jyotish is not just astrology. It's also astronomy, meteorology, numerology, anything that we use to apprehend the nature of the universe. Mm -hmm. So the Jyotir Vidya is this, you could say, like a subtle being that apparently whispers in your ear and tells you things <laughs> when you're tuned in. Right? And I, I know this works because there's been times when Someone has come back to me years later and said, you know, you told me this and this and this would happen exactly like that. And it did exactly happen like that. And, and I'm thinking, I don't remember saying that. <laughs> so like, who said that? <laughs> so there, there are definitely times when, I mean, it, for the most part, it's very much looking at and delineating and reading what's there in a sense, you know, picking out what is relevant. But sometimes there's this other element that supersedes. Okay, good. So... We've given people the indication, obviously, that Jyotish is uh, Eastern or Vedic astrology. Everybody has, has heard the word astrology. May, maybe not everyone listening has heard the, the idea of Eastern astrology or Jyotish. What's the difference between Jyotish and Western astrology? So actually, Western astrology originally comes from the East. It all starts in the East. Okay, there is no like separate Western astrology that you can date back far enough. If you go back far enough in Western astrology, it merges with Eastern astrology. For thousands of years, I mean, since the time, well before Krishna, because in Krishna they talk about in in the Mahabharata and in the life of Krishna is talked about certain nakshatras, combination stars, and the science of Jyotish was already fully established more than five thousand years ago because it was mentioned in those texts. And so the origin of it is really Sage Parashra, for the most part, who was the father of Veda Vyas. So maybe people know that Veda Vyas was the codifier of the Vedas. Mm. So he's a, he was a Rishi, and you can buy the you can buy the two volume set, the Parashra Hora Shastra, which is mm -hmm. basically the Bible of Vedic astrology. But in terms of how it's different, when Western astrology began, they so at the time about 1500 years ago, they diverged from the 
the view of the cosmos as being centered around the stars. Because if you think about it, astrology should have something to do with the stars. But actually, the astrology practice in West really has more to do with the seasons than the stars. In other words, there's a, the seasons means like Aries in Western astrology is just referred to as the beginning of spring. Right, so on March 21st, Western Aries starts. But the actual stars, the constellations that the astronomers are keeping track of, are slowly moving over time. Mm -hmm. So the sun doesn't even reach Aries these days till around April 14th. So as a result, 80% of the population have a different sun sign in their Jyotish chart versus their Western chart because we're looking at the actual stars, not the seasons. Right? Okay. That's one big difference. It's based on the actual stars, the sidereal zodiac. It also has many other differences. In other words, the division of the um, sky, not just into the 12 signs of the zodiac, which Western astrology borrowed from Hindu astrology, but also the division into the 27 nakshatras. Nakshatra means star, and so everyone's born under a certain star, and the star is basically that you're born under is the star where the moon was at the time you were born. So there's these finer divisions in, in this system that make it quite different. Okay. Um, so to my mind, all of this begs the question, we need to get into the mechanics of it a little bit because, you know, many people will feel like, so what, where the stars are, where the planets are, or anything else? What, how could that possibly influence an individual's life? You know, I mean, how, what sort of influence is that? How is it propagated? You know, um, yeah. and is there any proof for it in terms of anything that, that's measurable? Well, actually, so it's not, we don't actually think of the planets as causing anything or directing anything. It's not like Jupiter's making something happen, mm -hmm. literally, but everything is interconnected because the whole universe is like a holograph. So when you look at one part of the system, it reflects another part. So there's a reflection everywhere. And what happens is at the moment of birth, there's a reflection of what the incoming soul is bringing in. It's reflected in the position of the planets and the stars. Right, according to the according to the position at the time of birth, there's this idea of synchronicity, synchronicity as without so within. It's not like one is causing the other; they're just reflecting each other. Yeah, so it's it's sort of like a a template or something, that, uh, a configuration that is going to have significance. It, it, you can, if you can read that configuration, you kind of know what how an individual's life is going to go, but it's, it's not that like that a road configuration map, yeah. is causing it. Right, it's a bit like a road map. Yeah, okay. Um, so, as I, uh, incidentally, I should add here that, you know, I don't have a real good, uh, well, to put it mildly, I don't have a good mind for astrology, for, of any, uh, for Jyotish. It, it never sticks when I hear something about it, but Irene is very good at it, actually, and um, she has been largely responsible for developing most of the questions that I'll be asking today. Um, and she's sitting right here and might add a few more questions as we go along. So here's one she wrote out. Um, you know, the, the birth chart is significant in Jyotish, as I understand it. The planet's position on a date and time and location uh, when a person is born. So explain how the birth chart forms the basis for everything that gets interpreted for each person throughout their lives. And also, what defines the moment of birth, uh, the first breath? Okay. I mean, I was born by cesarean. I don't know if that has any significance, but it was when I first breathed. And, yeah. um, you know, and why is this so important, the moment of birth? Well, yeah, so at the moment of birth, 
there is a con again there's a configuration of the stars the planets the heavens and the angle with which the horizon intersects all of that okay so there's a pattern and it's a it's an astronomical pattern that can be, can be calculated without it's a totally scientific thing but as far as the moment of birth it's always been considered to be the first breath and sometimes in hospitals they they write down something different they might write down the cutting of the cord or they might write down when the first when the head first emerges but it's the first breath that counts and it's because breath is associated with life before birth the child is breathing through its mother through the umbilical cord right and then there's that expression he breathed his last so if the if the end of life is the last breath that means the beginning of life must be the first breath <laughs> it's simply about breath independent breath there's a physical vehicle and the breath is in when it's alive and the breath is out when it's not so that's why the breath is so important so sometimes when you're doing somebody's chart and it doesn't seem to make sense like you know you're, you're seeing one thing in the chart but another thing in a person's life do you yeah. expect that the birth time might have been recorded improperly and then you have to somehow figure out what the actual birth time probably was actually even if a person's birth time is recorded accurately i normally check to see if it's correct so i'll ask them a few things like did your father's father die before you were born which would be maybe the case if your time is what you say it is but if mm -hmm. it's two minutes earlier it could be something different so by we can we can pretty quickly find out what is going on by checking a few events yeah and when people don't know their time of birth also then we calculate their time by they can go through make an exhaustive list of uh, life events and we can use that to find the starting point so when the time of birth is correct everything does fit in life okay good um, so on your website you say we are born at a particular uh, space time in the universe when the soul takes birth it descends through the heavens and the atmosphere before reaching the earth and when i read that it kind of made it sound like souls are going around, Floating around. Like satellites or something and they come in through the atmosphere so what what are you actually saying there about the soul's location before birth okay well maybe that forgive me if that's perhaps a bit of poetic license there okay. um, actually really what it is is the souls exist in the astral plane okay the astral plane is another plane there's the physical plane there's the astral plane which is also superimposed on the physical plane there's also the causal plane which is beyond that and so they exist in the astral plane which means they exist right where we are except they're out of phase with physical reality so they're not visible to our senses so they're actually they don't really descend from it's poetic i see okay good through they're the really around they're just floating around but now you see when a soul is kind of becoming in this is very important because actually we say we don't have any control over when we're born and it's true from the person from the point of view of the incoming soul that that is true but then there's also this notion of conscious conception in india you find that people will visit temple and do prayers and you know do all their rituals you know and pious actions in order to bring in a spiritual soul and it's said that in that instance the soul that's destined to be born may be hanging around the parents even long before conception because they've already identified oh this is where i'm going to go so there's like this notion that the souls do have like a higher soul is always looking for a higher birth right if you want to have a good birth you're going to come into the body of a, of a yogini you know someone who's spiritually alive you know it mm -hmm. and whereas souls that are brought in in ordinary terms just through normal human interaction 
they're not going to have as much freedom, you see. So they, they, sometimes the soul may be picked out well before even the conception. And sometimes it's just a last-minute luck of the draw. My sister and her husband, her husband in particular, had vivid experiences when both of their children kind of came in, as it were. It was a, it was a real clear experience. And so the understanding is here, just to reiterate, is that well, for one thing, in some cases, at least, we choose our parents, which, you know, many people say, well, you have no choice over your parents, but actually, perhaps you do. <laughs> By your actions in the previous life, you set up a vibration which draws you into the conditions which are suitable. Yeah. Yeah. And I've talked to some people on this show who say that, you know, sometimes we intentionally choose very difficult circumstances because it's going to teach us certain karmic lessons, like we might be born to an alcoholic father or you know, a parent who is alcoholic right. or in some in poverty or some such thing because those hard knocks are going to actually work off some karma for us. Do you concur with that? Yeah, I agree with that. I think that um, that old expression, sore brings you closer to God, is, is absolutely true. Yeah. And in fact, we find that even when people have awakening experience, it's often through some tragedy or loss that those are triggered. Right? Very true. Uh-huh. Um, just to get back into the mechanics a little bit, um, yeah. does Jyotish jibe with the modern understanding of the solar system, or is it based on kind of a more archaic Ptolemaic view? I think Jyotish is based on the exact understanding of the solar system. It's completely scientific and has been since day one. Some people, you know, argue that um, well, because Jyotish is incomplete because it doesn't include the outer planets, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. The reason the Rishis didn't mention them is because they weren't visible to the naked eye. So people couldn't see them without a telescope, and there were no telescopes in those days. So they weren't mentioned, but it does say in the scriptures that new planets will be discovered in the future, and they should be studied and incorporated. So it's not like Jyotish is incomplete. It is actually completely complete. In fact, I would say it's always an evolving science. Well, that's good to know. That's a good attitude that it's evolving, you know, that it doesn't consider itself fixed in stone. Well, some people consider it fixed and so on, but I certainly don't. <laughs> yeah. So, do you take the outer planets into consideration in your work? Well, when we talked about the, you know, in the mechanics, like one thing also that Jyotish has, which Western astrology doesn't have, is the understanding that there are cycles in life, right? When each planet is active, right? When you come under influence of a certain planet. Uh, and these cycles last, like the, the cycles are long cycles, and the total of all the sort of 120-year uh, cycle, right, means all nine planets take 120 years to complete one cycle. So we're going through this cycle. Now, of course, the outer planets, Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, don't have a cycle. Somebody might be in their Saturn period or their Mercury period, but they're not going to be in their Pluto period. Uh -huh. At the same time, the other way that impact happens is through transits, right? There's the cycles and there's the transit. Transit just means where are the planets currently? So I'm quite sure that the impact of the transits of the outer planets is significant. I can speak from my own personal experience. When Pluto transited exactly, exactly square to my moon, to the degree exactly, that's when my mother passed. Hmm. And of course, moon represents mother. Pluto is you know, in the fourth house from the mother. My mother passed at that time. Neptune was transiting my ascendant exactly to the degree the first time I met Amma. And Neptune is about spirituality. So, I mean, yes, the transits of the outer planets are worth looking at. We know now that there are probably trillions of potentially inhabitable planets in the universe. Um, do you think that Jyotish 
whatever it might be called in, in these other places, is a universal science and that each uh, solar system, um, if there are intelligent beings there, would have its own jyotish that was you know, modified according to the planetary arrangement in that solar system? Of course. Their rishis would have investigated, probed, and discovered what those vibrations are and given the science of how that could be delineated. And even here, like what happens if we go to Mars? Right? They're talking about going to Mars. But what if they go to Mars and colonize Mars and then a child is born on Mars? Well, the astrology, that will be different because you won't have Mars in the chart. You'll have Earth in the chart, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. Think about that, right? And then you'll have to calculate we, we, like, we wonder, where on we Mars wonder, was the you know, child born. Where on it? Mars? Well, exactly. Where was its, what was its ascendant and all that? Huh. Yeah. Wow. You know, whenever there's a, an eclipse in the world, um, particularly in the U.S., I guess it was last summer or the summer before, there yeah. was a total solar eclipse and it was a big excitement and everybody migrated yeah. to the place and stayed out in campers so they could watch it and all. In, right. in uh, Jyotish, as I understand it, uh, the Vedic system, eclipses are considered to be kind of inauspicious and you don't want to go out and watch one. What would be the impact of actually being born during one, sun or moon? Well, basically, you must understand that eclipses are times when there's a lot of energy, a lot of power. A lot of shakti okay why why because it's an alignment right because rahu and ketu the eclipsing bodies are lined up with the sun and the moon whenever planets line up they become powerful by being joined mm -hmm. okay so this is a union right it's like a yoga it's a union it's a union of energies right yeah. so they're magnified it's like a magnified energy right that's even true gravitationally we can have higher tides when things are lined of up course yeah the asian tsunami that affected the ashram in 2004 December, right? Mm -hmm. That was that occurred on the full moon at sunrise. I mean that the earthquake that caused it occurred at the full moon at sunrise, where the sun and the moon are basically pulling like a tug of war across the plates of the earth, and that plate in Sumatra collapsed and mm -hmm. caused the tsunami, which killed thousands of people. So it's even geologically sound that reasoning. So there's mm -hmm. this there's this power. The question is, how is it directed? If someone's born in an eclipse of the sun, there's this tremendous power. If they adopt a spiritual life, they can be a real light to the world. They'd be a shining, shining being. They'd be an example to society. On the other hand, if they're not focused on spiritual life, especially as they're growing up, they can become very destructive. In other words, that power can go either way, positive or negative. So they either become a, a beacon of light to the world or they become like a... A darkness right so they can go either way an eclipse of the moon if someone is on a spiritual bent then people born in a lunar eclipse would be sweet and pious and a blessing to the world they would their love for divinity would they would be great bhaktis right because there's a you know, this power there right there's this magnified power of the eclipse if they're not on a spiritual path then they become aloof withdrawn kind of lazy drowsy sort of like you know they're, they're, they're a little out of touch with reality okay in fact the current president was born during a lunar eclipse i was just gonna say that sounds just like Trump. <laughs> <laughs> can you think of any other famous examples of people who were born on eclipses well the prophet muhammad is said to have been born on a solar eclipse mm -hmm. and whatever one might 
think, you know, he's definitely a powerful person. Oh, yeah. Influenced millions of people and still does. Yeah. So we touched a little bit on the fact that the planets don't deliver karma to us. They are more like a, uh, a sort of a reflection, a reflection or a pattern of things. You do mention that each planet has a deity. And um, let's define what a deity is and who or what these deities are that are supposedly, um, you know, that planets have. And just to throw in a few more questions, are they embodied in the planets as our souls are in our bodies? Okay, so date, but the planetary deities, I guess that the deities associated with each planet, they are celestial beings in a sense, mm -hmm. in terms of their impact in the cosmos, more sort of close to home. They're like, you could call them powerful psychic forces that represent different elements of, you know, the different devas, right? So there's, so there's a deity for compassion, there's a deity for, right? You know, there's a deity for different things, deity for strength, for courage. There's all these different forms these are just aspects of divinity right so like the hindu pantheon right but they are some of them are associated particularly with a planet like like mars is associated with lord subramania right he's like the god of like an arjuna kind of figure the warrior sun is shiva so shiva or have, surya well shiva ultimately i see surya is an aspect of shiva okay yeah surya is the sanskrit word for the sun right right all right, let's probe into that a little bit more. So, you know, we see in all these pictures of Subramanyam and Shiva and all the, the Vedic deities. And um, are we, you're implying here, obviously, that they have some reality. They're not just sort of fictional characters or um, folklore kind of things. They, they represent some deep principle, as it were or impulse of intelligence. Energies, yeah, impulses, yeah. yeah right. the impulse, that, that have yeah. some kind of a function, a governing function of some sort in creation. Is that fair to say? Yeah, right. And would they have, would that function be universal or just exclusive to our solar system or what? I think the qualities are universal, but how they're embodied would be unique to our solar system. In other words, the moon embodies certain qualities, some compassion, empathy, Mars embodies certain qualities. Mercury is for communication, so it embodies certain qualities of mental agility, facility. So when we see those planets in the chart, we're looking to see, well, in what state are they? You know, if a person has a well-placed moon, they're going to have a calm disposition, be you know, relaxed, you know, compassionate, content, self-content. If the moon is under negative influences in the chart, the person will be more restless, agitated, um, etc. So it's by by the position of the planets whether they're you know well placed well aspected in good houses etc that shows how those energies also play out in the person now nothing should be seen as cast in cement everyone can through their own effort through their own spiritual practice go beyond what the whatever you know is shown in the horoscope we shouldn't think that we're just tied to you know that's it buddy you know you're like in poker, right? You're dealt a hand. You don't have any control over the hand you're dealt, but how skillfully do you play that card? It's like that's also how skillfully do you use what you do have? Big part of this. Hmm. Yeah, the guy that John Hinckley shot when he was trying to shoot President Reagan used that very metaphor about the hand he'd been dealt and he was doing his best to, to deal with it. <clears throat> 
fact, people often use that metaphor. Um, so as we talk along here, try to keep in mind people who might have a hard time accepting or believing or understanding this. Let's um, kind of flesh it out for them as we go along. I mean, because there may be sure. many people listening who are very spiritual people, meditating yeah. or whatever they do, who might still think, well, you know, these planets are just hunks of rock circling around the sun, and we're anthropomorphizing them by attributing all these personal qualities to them and these influences to them. What more can you say to help clarify that for people who might be thinking along those lines? Yeah, again, to, just to reiterate, the planets aren't actually doing anything. They are just a reflection of what's in us. So we have these patterns in us because of our background, because of our previous life um, tendencies, our vasanas, you know, the conditions that we created in a previous life are reflected in our current life. And so the planets also reflect something about that. It's a reflection. It's not a cause and effect. Okay. It's a synchronicity. It's like a synchronicity, a holographic universe where one part reflects the other. When you look at one part, you see the other part. So it's it's not like Mars is doing anything. On the other hand, there's this giant clockwork in the universe, which is like these energies have their time when they come to the surface. Mm -hmm. And then they act and then they compel people to act in a certain way or a certain direction. And if you understand what that energy is, then you can channel that in a very productive way. One thing that helps me understand this, and perhaps others will help it help others too, is just that um, the universe is not random or accidental or um, really even inert. The whole thing is just sort of a play of intelligence. And, and if we look closely at anything, we can see that intelligence at play. It's all pervading and just orchestrating yeah. everything so th things are not sort of capricious or random or accidental and and what what you're saying is that um, this orderliness or intelligence has actually um, taken a, f a form that we can observe and understand in in the arrangement of the planets just as it has in many other things the functioning of an atom or of a cell or of anything right. we can see that intelligent this is just one more way of seeing it it's handiwork it said that the creator leaves secrets to the creation all over the place <laughs> it's up to us to discover them like uh -huh. they're also in the palm of the hand uh -huh. right? a good palmist can just look at the palm and see what's going on for the person and even the thumb itself can be enough and uh, numerology plays a role there too omenology in India, there's a lot of astrologers who will do a reading based on simply as they are talking to the person, they watch what's going on around them. And if like a crow comes from the southwest corner, that will mean something, mm. right? Or if a gecko chirps in the northeast corner, it means something else. But nature is always speaking. It's just, do we have the ears to hear it? Yeah, I remember one of the Carlos Castaneda books, uh, Carlos and Don Juan were, were talking and the, the coffee pot started to whistle and Don Juan said, oh, the coffee pot agrees. You know, he, he saw that it's significant that it started whistling right. at that moment. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, all right, let's talk about karma for a while. You, you talk a lot on your website about karma and obviously yeah. the topic of karma is very germane to this whole discussion. Um, so... Let's define what karma is first, and then we'll, we'll unpack it from there. Karma is basically, in a broad sense, um, <clears throat> and it's often translated as action. 
So it's not, when people hear the word karma, they think, oh, something bad. Actually, it simply means action. Could be good action, could be bad action. It's also, by extension, the fruit of action. So as the Bible says, as you sow, so shall you reap. So if you perform sweet, loving, kind actions, acts of kindness, then you get good karma. You get what's called punya, which is meritus karma. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you do unkind actions, then you get what's called papa. Papa means negative P -A -B. karma. P-A, uh, papa, P-A-P-A. -A. Oh, papa. <laughs> Papa's got a brand <laughs> Not new being used with Nazi. <laughs> Papam, it's called actually P A P A M. Papam. Ah, okay, good. All right. So, 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 karma means action and also the fruit of the action at the same time. Mm. So we've done many actions. Some of them good. Some of them not so good. And then, by the balance, we see where we're going. Okay, and that again gets us back to the whole intelligence of the universe thing because it's it couldn't just be like billiard balls where you roll a billiard ball, it hits the other billiard balls, the, the influence of that doesn't necessarily come back to your hand or something. Um, right, not always immediate. Yeah, uh, and, but with karma, you know, we're talking about things we might have done 10 lifetimes ago that, that could still come back to us or whatever, right? Sure, and in fact, it's not just what we've done because it's also, there's, there's personal karma for sure, but there's also familial karma, mm. right? Because even the Bible says, uh, you know, the sins of the father go to the next seven generations. Yeah, I think the, the Native Americans idea said that, that you know, too. So this is idea that if you have, if your ancestors have done something, like say unkind, mm -hmm. that karma is also being carried by the souls that are in that line, and they have to also work it out. So you're not working out just personal karma. If people, if someone is suffering, they shouldn't think, oh my God, I must have been a really horrible person in my last life. Like, you know, so why else would I be suffering? Well, it could be working out some family karma. So like just understand that you're working out what you've been given to work out because you're able to work it out. Yeah. In a way that doesn't seem fair, you know, why should I work out my uncle George's <laughs> thing? But on the other hand, it does seem fair because it's like we're all kind of climbing the mountain together and we're, we're all roped together and we're helping each other out. If one person right. is struggling a bit, the others help him along. Right. right. You, all go, you all rise or all fall together, you know, in the end, yeah. <laughs> in some respect. But again, to my mind, when we talk about karma, it brings back to my awareness the notion that it's an intelligent universe. It's all all pervading intelligence. Interconnected. Yeah, because otherwise, how could it possibly be calculated? It's beyond human intellect, certainly, to calculate all the ramifications of every little action and you know have them all come back properly. It's an incredibly complex and deep thing, and people say that astrology isn't you know 100% accurate. I would say astrology is 100% accurate, but the human mind can only contain so much. Yeah. So astrologers are not going to see 100% accuracy because they, they're just simply not able to access 100%. They could access a good vast majority of it. Mm. But in the end, only, only the creator will actually know what's going on, right? In the end. Do you think they're, they're kind of like lords of karma or we talked about deities earlier. Are there sort of subtle beings whose job it is to administer karma or is it more something that's just built in intrinsically built into the mechanics of creation that everything is calculated and comes back everything, it's meant to everything is balanced everything gets balanced by the laws of nature mm -hmm. essentially so um, 
yeah, we think of it like cause and effect, but really there's this, again, it's just a synchronicity. Everything is synchronized. So the deities are there. They can be, anybody can access any of the deities. Amos says that too, right? All the, all the deities are within us. Right. They're not just off on some planet or something there. Yeah. Yeah. Their principles, their principles, their laws of nature, we can invoke them, we can use them, we can be conscious of them. So the whole point of astrology, I think, is not to, I would say astrology is not so much understanding who you are, because actually who you are is the divine blissful self beyond all of these things. So it's actually astrology is defining something about who you think you are, <laughs> like, like the version of the version of illusion that we are living under, right? It's to get us out of that trap, basically, get us out of that illusion, right? So it's like this: it's the vehicle for getting out, like a roadmap. If you if you get a, if you get your roadmap out and you use that roadmap to drive, say, to Boston, you know, then you'll get there pretty quickly because you you've got a clear path, right? Mm -hmm. And once you get to Boston, you throw away the map; you don't need it, right? So it's like Jyotish is also a map, but it's not the ultimate because the ultimate is to go beyond. Right? Once you've reached the destination, the ultimate destination, there's no need. Yeah, and yet even people like Ama um, consult Jyotishis sometimes for different things. Why would she if there's no need for a Jivan Muti? Well, she consults because she's asking about her children who aren't at the ultimate. Ah, okay, so it's not she's about her. About one of, right? She's just asking about one of her followers. So yeah. Jyotish would have no usefulness for a liberated being. It would just be for their... Well, it's still, I mean, the karma still acts. I mean, Ama still has a physical body. Mm -hmm. It goes through physical things and even in her chart when there's certain cycles come on you know there was that one year where she was wearing the neck brace the whole year that was yeah. clearly you know 1999 i think it was you know there was like something in her chart that was yeah that would be the time that would be more challenging so, there, yeah. so even the physical even even anybody there's still the physical karma applies to the physical body she may be completely unaffected by it beyond it but still the physical body has to experience the karma of the physical world or of the physical world and so an awakened being might also find it useful for instance to for jyotish to say well this would be a good day to leave for a journey or you know that kind of thing maybe well exactly i mean in fact amma often would say no we you know like if she's going on a tour she would say no we can't leave now you know it's like not the right time mm -hmm. you know and then she'd say okay now we can go like a couple hours later you know yeah. it's like very specific so it's like, it's very specific. Yeah, if you're tuned in, then you would naturally spontaneously act in accordance with harmony, the, the harmony of nature. So would she say those things because some Jyotishi told no, her so, or no, just because her no. own intuition knew it? She would say those things because of her own intuition telling her, and later on I checked the chart. Yeah, sure that would make, that make sense, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. It seems to me that some karma is heavy duty, very compelling, you know, it's like, coming at you like a Mack truck, and, and others is looser, lighter, you know. Um, yeah. Would you concur with that? Yeah, karma is has, I would say, degrees. And it comes down to, basically, because when we look at the chart, we're looking to see certain indications, certain factors. Now, any particular condition may be seen by a variety of different factors. But like if, for example, all the factors for a particular condition are simultaneously in the negative, then we'd say that's pretty heavy karma. In yeah. other words, 
like let's say there was a, a case, for example, let's say there's a case of someone who couldn't have children for whatever reason. Okay, well, the fifth house is the house of children. So we'd find that the fifth house might have malefic planets in it. Then we'd also find that the fifth ruler is under malefic influence. Then we might find also that Jupiter is the general indicator of children is also under malefic influence. So like if all the factors are negative, you would call that a confluence of influence, right? Mm -hmm. So then it, it still might not be impossible to have children, but it would be extremely difficult. Like, right. and would only happen through some kind of a miracle. So on the other hand, most people don't have that kind of severity. There's usually a mix of influence, positive and negative. So then it's a matter of understanding, okay, well, if, if it is difficult, but when is the best time? And so there is like, there's still gonna be opportunities, right? Hmm. So understanding that, understanding when is, a lot of this is to do with when is the right time to do something for the, the best result. Yeah. Can there be things like, let's say you had some karma coming, which was gonna, cause you to have a serious car accident and get injured right. um, yeah. and but then you engage in spiritual practice or you do other right. things which kind of you know diminish the the momentum of the, the karma, karma right and instead you stub your toe or you know right you have a fender bender instead of yeah, a, total, a fender bender or something part, something right. small yeah. no that's true that's true because you see when you do positive actions when you do acts of kindness right when you build up karmic merit mm -hmm. that acts as a sort of a larger protective shield around the person right so then the karma the the, the intensity of the that may still be an accident but it won't be as severe yeah but then still, I suppose there are some types of karma that are just inevitable. Christ got crucified, Ramana Maharshi got cancer, you know, things like that. Right, right. It's some, somehow the weight of the karma may be more than human effort, you know, to lift it. Or it could just be part of the divine plan. Mm -hmm. You know, it could be necessary for the divine plan, for the, as they say, greater good. And also that buildup of positive karma could be from past lives. Right, she's saying sure. that the buildup from Ports, a, a yeah. positive karma could be, yeah, which is I mean, shown on the chart as the purva punya. Yeah, as a matter of fact, in terms of past life, I mean, some people are born in you know very auspicious circumstances with in comfortable homes, with great educational opportunities, and all the rest, good health. Other people are born with serious health problems and poverty, and you know yada yada. We, we all know the story. Yeah. Uh, so right. I guess we would attribute all that to karma. Well, if you didn't believe in reincarnation, you'd have to think the universe is a pretty cruel place. Yeah. Because how, how, would, how would that be fair? But if you understand the law of cause and effect, well, the souls that are working out, you know, what, it, what, are, what karma are they working out? They're working out the actions of the ancestors. Their own actions in the past and their ancestors are being worked out. Yeah, it's interesting how things are kind of lined up in a chain. Like if you don't believe in reincarnation, then all kinds of conclusions come out from becomes that. Becomes impossible. Becomes impossible right. to Right. Yeah. Even it might even be hard to believe that there is any sort of God however however you define it. If well of course there are a lot of Christians who believe in God but don't believe in reincarnation. Somehow they work that out. Yeah, well the Bible used to have all kinds of references to reincarnation, but the early church removed them. So Right. Council of Nicaea and all that. So on your website, you talk about how karma includes acts of commission and omission. In other words, things we could have done but didn't do. Uh, right. Elaborate right. on that a bit. Yeah, so people, most people, I think, understand that if they do something, let's say they do something bad, and there's, they would understand that there's a karmic consequence to that. Or if they do something good, there's a karmic goodness that comes out of that. But there's also times where 
there's something that we could do, but we don't do. In other words, let's say we, um, we know something, but we don't act on it. We know something should be done, but we don't act on it. So by not acting, we could also be incurring karma. Yeah, like we have an opportunity to save some somebody from drowning or from injury or something like that, and we, we choose right. not to, yeah. Right. If someone's an able-bodied swimmer, obviously not someone who... Is going to drown also. Is going to drown also, you know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. <laughs> but I always say if someone's, you know, if someone's drowning in the pool, you know, you throw them a life ring and pull them to the side, right? Mm -hmm. You don't, if you jump in, you could, they could take you down too. So, like, you want to also be anchored. Like, to help someone, you have to also be anchored on the shore yourself somehow. Yeah. Metaphorically, not necessarily yeah, physically. Yeah, that's, that's a good metaphor for being anchored in the self or in pure awareness in order to really be of great greatest help to others. Yeah. So, how do we balance acceptance with initiative? You say that if you know external events of our lives are ruled by past karma, and this requires an attitude of acceptance, but then we don't want to be fatalistic or passive. There's that whole Shakespeare thing of whether it is nobler in the mind to take arms against a sea of troubles, or by opponent and by opposing end them, and that whole thing. How do we balance that? Well, I think it's really the dialogue of fate versus free will that mm. comes up, and people have debated as to whether or not things are fated or if we have free will. And uh, my conclusion is that both exist. We have fate and we have free will. And it's in proportion. And uh, in fact, Yogananda's Guru's Guru is reported to have said that when we're born, 75% of our karmas are fixed. And 25% is where we have room to, like room to grow. Wiggle okay, or, or where we have free will. Yeah, yeah where we have free will. Uh, that that does make sense. You know, a lot of things in our life are fixed, like the conditions we're born under, etc. But then that portion where we can, that 25% is where we can evolve. I believe also that the more the soul evolves, the bigger that 25% can come. In other words, you can increase the 25%. If, and on the other hand, if someone doesn't lead a life according to spiritual principles, they may even lose their 25%. They maybe even become more fated. In fact, there's people who seem to be totally fated because they don't have any understanding at all about spirituality. So it's like we were starting with a certain mix of fate and free will, and through our own conscious effort, we can expand the free will part. Yeah, there's the forgive them, Father, they know not what they do thing. But on the other mm -hmm. hand, if you, to whatever extent you do know what you're doing, uh, you have to exercise that knowledge. Uh, to the best right. of your ability, and then that sort of right. moves you in the direction of greater and greater freedom. Right, yeah. To take a practical example, let's say a person, we all know how many people are getting addicted to opioids these days, and, you know, so at this point, if someone says, hey, I think I'll try some opioids, probably before they're addicted, they have a lot more choice in the matter than a year later when they've gotten really strung out. So it's going right. to be a lot easier to choose not to do it than it will be if they've already been doing it for a year. Right. Of course. Yeah. So just a little bit of an example, I guess. Now, one thing that's interesting to me on the free will issue is that the more we move toward God or enlightenment or whatever, it seems to me the more it's the will of God that is actually directing our life. You know, thy will be done. And in a way, that might seem like less freedom because God has kind of taken over the, the reins. Uh, 
or the divine intelligence is <clears throat> calling the shots more and more. But actually, when the divine intelligence is calling the shots, that's kind of the way we'd like our life to go, usually. Um, so there's this funny kind of contradiction between we're actually getting more free, but we're actually seceding our, our individual willpower at the same time. Yeah, I mean, it, that's an interesting way of looking at it. That the divine will is actually basically what's there when the ego gets out of the way. Yeah, kind of what I'm saying. And right? the ego is kind of the problem. Right. <laughs> but the ego doesn't really want to get out of the way in a lot of cases. And so that's the battle. That's the age-old battle. Like this illusion of the separate me, you know, that... Uh, wants to have it my way and then the divine which is saying hey do what you like but what do they say if you want to make god laugh tell him your plans <laughs> yeah yeah there was some kind of Rumi or hafiz thing where he, he talks about <laughs> how you know um i i forget can you know that thing i'm alluding to where he says you know god i think i still have a million moves you know but god's basically already got checkmated me, got me. me checkmate right <laughs> <laughs> The thing is, you know, at that stage, the bliss of experience so far outweighs any thought of what might have been had I not gone this way, that it becomes a moot point. By external circumstances, the person might think, oh, well, that person doesn't have a lot of choice because they're just in this, you know, they're in this other place. But, you know, like from the point of view of that other place, it's like they're in bliss, so who cares? Like they. Right. <laughs> It's interesting to ponder, though, because there are a number of voices that are quite articulate that argue that we don't have free will. People like Sam Harris and many others, and many people I interact with through Batgap say that. So I'm glad we're talking about it. It's a continuum. It's not black and white. Right. Nothing is black and white. It's a continuum. At some places, there is no free will. In some places, there is. And it's just understanding the difference like the serenity prayer oh right? yeah exactly yeah yeah the wisdom to know the difference let's know the difference yeah yeah um let's say two people are born at the exact same date time and place uh let's say somebody else was born in the same hospital i was born in in, in the next room at the same time yeah. same moment yeah yeah and yet their lives go in quite different directions they don't seem to coincide very much um, no. is it they, they don't perfectly match up would this be due to genetics uh, and free will, or or what, or what else might be a factor? Okay, so there. Well, there's lots of. I mean, there's lots of cases of twins where they're born like virtually at the same moment, mm -hmm. and yet they have very different lives. Mm -hmm. But there's also different principles for you know interpreting twins' horoscopes, um, where you can tell them apart. But um, but in in terms of individuals born at the same time, in the same place under largely the same basically having identical charts as it were the first principle of jyotish is to consider the background the family the place the time where that person is born the conditions they're born into there was a, a famous story of one of the kings of england where the, the, the son was born he was going to be the future king of england and just outside the castle walls there was a ordinary you know commoner born at the same moment they both married on the same day the commoner got his biggest break in his career the day that the the king became crowned. Their children were born on the same day. Their wives had the same name. And they died within one day of each other. Wow. So 
And so there is like there, there is like this potential for the pattern to be quite specific. Yeah, interesting. That's a true story, huh? As far as you know. I haven't researched it myself. <laughs> <laughs> That's very interesting. Um, yeah. It'd be cool to do some studies on Jyotish. I mean, you could yeah. uh, do, it'd be easy enough to find out well, when, when, when and when, where when people... You Hmm? You know, when you said before about is it scientifically provable, like you, you, I want to go back to that point you made about is it scientifically provable. I've been actually um, had this idea for more than 20 years to scientifically prove Jyotish. And in fact, I wrote a couple of um, articles for the Journal of Astrology in India. What I did was I, I found charts which had a particular thing in common. So I would extract a group of 180 charts and the thing that those charts had in common is they all lost their father at a young age like before they were adults or another group of 180 charts where they all had death of a sibling and i studied those charts in like massive detail to see if there's patterns that would be appearing there that aren't in the sort of general population and sure enough there's lots of things that came out of that so those those researchers were done they need to be done with bigger numbers and bigger control groups but basically i'm sure it's provable scientifically that you know you could look at a chart and say well if those factors are considered then the probability let's say of that particular occurrence in the person's life is going to be much higher than the norm you could also do a study where you get data from hospitals of you know when people were born at, at pretty much yes. the same time and then get in touch yeah. with those people and see how their lives have been going. Yeah. They wanted to do a study of that at, at, uh, at Ames. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the Ames problem was uh, hospital in Cochin, in Cochin yeah. yeah. And they sent me some data. They were going to, they actually wanted to look at the charts of people who had like some kind of a condition. Um, Let's say, like they wanted, to, they wanted it more from a practical point of view. Like oh, we have all these charts of people, who, or, or or people who had had amputations or something, and they wanted to see whether well, something in common in their charts. Mm. The trouble is, the trouble is that in Kerala, most people don't have accurate birth times mm. at all. So they, they would, you know, they would they would give their details, but they wouldn't know their birth time, mm. or they would mention their birth star, but then when you look up the day that they say they were born, that wasn't even that star. So even their birthday is often not right. So we had we had lots of trouble trying to get actual data huh. to work with that. I should think Indian parents would keep track of that thing because Jyotish is so significant in that culture. Well, yes and no, because the, um, you know, they're just as likely to pick up a Western astrology book at the bookstore mm. because they have this notion that everything Western is better. Kind of, and in, in, in not that much have they embraced their own tradition there. Mm. Some do, certainly the Brahmins do, but not everybody. I see. Anyway, possibilities for research there. Yeah. So, um, as I understand it, there's something called upayas in Jyotish, which are remedial measures. And these include yeah. like pujas, wearing certain gems, um, and all. Yes. Uh, why don't you yes. talk about that a little bit? Okay, so like uh, like we're doing a, a ceremony, like a, a yagya or a puja or a ceremony, um, is a way of in, again, it's just a way of invoking energy. Mm -hmm. So let's say we see something in the chart where there's a negative influence. Well, if there's a if there's a specific ritual performed, um, it could be it could help alleviate the effects of that condition. Okay, but it, it very much depends on the intention and the consciousness of the performing it, the pujari, right? They have to be clear in their own, right? They have to be clear themselves in order to be able to get that energy to flow. 
So it's uh, yes, there is there can be great benefit from these pujas yagas if they're done with proper intention by people who are in the right space for it. Mm -hmm. As far as the gemstones, the scriptures actually very specifically state that the the planetary energies are most strongly reflected in certain pure substances on Earth. Mm -hmm. So for the sun, it's the stone ruby. You know, for Jupiter, it's the yellow sapphire. For Saturn, it's the blue sapphire. And so by wearing the stone of that planet, you actually increase the quality or energy of that planet for that person. But of course, not everyone should wear blue sapphire because for some people, Saturn has a very positive role and for some others, it's quite a, the opposite. Mm. So you have to understand for each person which ones they should strengthen and which ones they should avoid. So that's also part of, of course, what we look at. So but if you wear the right stone, if you wear the right stone, it really does dramatically change things. I mean, there was, I'll give you, for instance, there was this guy, Leo Rising. So he's ruled by the sun and his son was debilitated in Libra. So like the worst possible place for the sun is Libra. This guy came to consult with me every year for years in Germany. He runs a school. He has a, him and his wife run a private school. And uh, every year he came to consult and every year I told him he should wear a ruby. Well, after many years, one day he went to the bookstore and picked up a ruby and put it on. He came to back to me two days later and he says, you know, from the second I put that stone on, I felt different. I still feel different. So, like, yes, the right stone in the right place can actually make a huge difference. Hmm. Have you seen examples of, let's say, famous people like Elizabeth Taylor or something who have a great big giant diamond, but they're not meant to wear a diamond and, and you can kind of see how it's negatively impacting them? Well, actually, Princess Di was given a huge blue sapphire, which is actually deadly for her. Mm. And obviously it wasn't a good thing. Mm. Um, also, apparently, this is something I heard, um, like somebody gave Muktananda a huge blue sapphire and he died shortly after. Mm. And it's not good in his chart either. Mm. So yes, I think the wearing the wrong stone is actually, could be seriously damaging. Mm. So um, is it that the stone serves as a kind of a, receiver as it were you know like a radio receiver Receive, except not magnifier, for radio waves, magnif magnifier it's of a magnifier. certain influences or energies which are energies yeah magnify certain yeah. energies yeah okay and those energies like like radio waves are kind of everywhere anyway but it, it sort of picks up on them and condensed, magnifies them, right. condenses them focuses them yeah absolutely yeah. okay powerful condensed force yeah, yeah. the pure stones yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because I keep having in mind, you know, certain people who watch this show who are skeptical about everything, and I'm wondering they're probably gnashing their teeth right now. But uh, all I would say is keep an open. I'm just mind. speaking from my experience, you know. I, you know, I when I used to do all the shopping for the jewelry for Amma, right? Mm -hmm. So I spent many. I mean, I was in Jaipur three or four times a year, testing out stones, and I got to be very sensitive to the vibration of the stone. In fact, blindfolded, I could separate the blue sapphires from the yellow sapphires just by putting them on my hand. And then I could separate the heated from the unheated because they all have a different vibration. So, you know, if you're tuned in, these things are pretty accessible. So, you know, the average person listening to this show is a spiritual aspirant. And I want to talk about the significance of Jyotish for spiritual aspirants. But also the average person listening to this show has things, practical things in their lives, you know, marriage sure. or buying a house or career right. issues and, and things yeah. like that. Um, so let's talk about both the practical and 
spiritual implications or applications of Jyotish. Yeah, it's true. I mean, Jyotish is actually really excels at um, timing, at timing. Like, it's just, it's probably its greatest strength is timing. So the person wants to know, you know, is this the right time for me to sell my house? Yeah. Or should I wait? Or is this the right time for me to change jobs? Or should I wait? You know, is this the right time to commence something? Or should I wait? Is it the right thing? Is it the right direction? Is it the right time? These are like things that come out of the chart. So people use this in order to get clarity. They're already thinking about something, but they're not sure. Or they're facing a decision. I could go here. I could go there. Which is the better option? Well, I don't know. I need a third. I need another outside opinion. So this is a way of invoking that. And spiritually, too, people want to know what kind of, you know, what can they do to advance spiritually? What is the best practice for them? You know, this is like also a common question. But most people ask about mundane things first. They ask about their family. They ask about their job. I always joke that when Indian families come to consult, all they want to know is when will the daughter be married? And when will the son get a good job? Right. And, you know, it, it sounds like they're really concerned about their children. But honestly, in Indian culture, the daughter is a burden until she's married. Then she's, you know, in another family, right? right. And the son is going to take care of the parents when they're old. So <laughs> they want him to have a good job. Yeah. You know, so it depends. The questions are very much have to do with the, the background of the person asking, too. Yeah, I know in our case, uh, you told us a couple of things that panned out. One was regarding the, the purchase of our, uh, at least a couple, many others, but at least w one was regarding the purchase of our house. Uh, how did yeah. that go, Irene? Do you remember? He told us the time period we would probably find a house, and, and we did. Yeah, told us the time period. Well, in fact, I'll give you another example. You sat with me one time. Uh, maybe, maybe, well, the first time we talked was, the first time we had a reading was 2001. I just looked it up yeah. in my database. And there was, a, it was, I don't know if it was the first or the second reading, but you were, you talked to me about this little idea you had about starting a, a little program called BatGap. No, I didn't get that idea until about 2009, I must say. Well, but. but you did consult with me about it at the time. Huh. Interesting. Yeah, and, and you're wondering about when was the good time to, to launch it. You actually took note? But no, well, wait a minute, Prasanna. No, I remember you asking me about Vatgap. Maybe I said a spiritual interview show or something, but the, even yeah, the, yeah. the name of Buddha at the Gas Pump didn't come up until 2009. Um, yeah, I didn't but we did discuss it. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess you mentioned that I would be doing a different career thing than I had been doing at the time, and that it would have <laughs> right. spiritual yeah. orientation to it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we kept wondering, well, how's this going to happen? <laughs> you know, what, what does he mean? And who would have thought, five hundred interviews later? Yeah. 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 And then it just evolved. We probably thought, mm, I've already done the spiritual thing for a yeah. living. You know, teaching meditation. That that didn't pay the bills. Huh. <laughs> 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 Um, so people probably come to you, you know, like thinking of getting married to one another and you look at both charts that's, and see how compatible yeah. they'd be. That's a lot of what we, you know, a lot of compatibility questions. Um, a lot of people have questions about whether or not they're, the how charts line up. And it's not like everyone's charts line up beautifully, but the point is it's good to understand how they line up. In other words, where are the strengths or the weaknesses? If you know there's weaknesses, you can understand that and work around it and accommodate, right? Whereas if you just go in blind, then you're going to be surprised by, well, how yeah. come this person doesn't think the way I do? Or 
do you actually sometimes say to people who really want to get married to each other, eh, I don't think that's such a good idea? Yeah, that's happened. And then how do they take that? Oh, I... <laughs> <laughs> there was this guy in, uh, in the ashram who wanted to marry somebody and I told him it was the worst possible combination. They just don't do it, don't do it. He went ahead and got married, had a daughter, then in the end, of course, they're divorced, and now she's like trying to get him for every penny he's got and using the daughter to manipulate him. Yeah, it's a very unhappy situation. It would have been better if he'd listened in the first place. He, he admitted afterwards he should have listened to me. Have you ever been wrong about things like that you've told people and it turns out later you, th you, you, you realize you were wrong and then you look back at the chart and you think, oh, I see how I got that wrong. I, so, I missed this or that. I think nobody is going to be 100% predicting accurately. You just have to go by what is like basically the higher probability. Mm -hmm. But there's always divine grace. I mean, someone someone could have some divine grace happen that wasn't you know foreseeable, or the other way, someone might look like they're completely safe and yet some accident happened that I missed, maybe because I wasn't looking for it, wasn't expecting to see it. So it's like a thousand-page book. You still have to open it up at a page and read, right? You yeah. Know? So um, what about the people, you know, a lot of people who listen to the show are really keen on the idea of enlightenment or awakening or realization or however they conceive of it. Um, and yeah, obviously the other things are important to them too, but that's really their burning interest in life. Um, how is Jyotish significant or useful for them? Well, Jyotish can show when are the best periods you know, for intensifying spiritual practice and also which kinds of spiritual practice would be most fruitful at different times. Like the kind of spiritual practice that's good for the person, whether they're maybe, maybe some people are more suited for a path of knowledge or path of devotion or path of seva or yoga or whatever. You know, these, these are indicated in the chart and they may also change over time, right? As the cycles change, there could be a time where the person's supposed to focus more on seva and then another time where they're supposed to be more inward, reflective, contemplative, not as much externally engaged. So like timing of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, most people who are on the spiritual path already have some kind of a sense of, you know, what that is. But it's nice to have it just sort of independently confirmed even in the chart. Yeah. Do you think Jyotish could help people um, choose a particular guru or teacher? Um, can you like do a, an individual's chart and then do a, the chart of some teacher that he or she wants to go and be with? And I'm often asked that question, like, is that, how is that teacher for me or how is that guru for me or, or do I have karma, positive or negative, with that particular individual? So yeah, it comes up as a question for sure. And I think the chart will also show whether or not the person is meant to be focused more on like an external physical relationship with the guru or, you know, some people's relationship with divinity is, is not really through the physical form even. You know, they could be just inspired by a picture of Ramana. So it's, uh, it's individual. So in addition to like the kinds of consultations we've been talking about, you know, marriage and you know, spiritual advice and employment things, it seems like, as I understand it, there are other kinds of things you can do. Like, for instance, there's this thing called astrolocation that would actually help you determine wh where a good place for you to live would be. 
Yeah. The principle there is that um, the planets exert maximum force when they are doing one of four things, either rising, setting, straight up or straight down. So if we can then look at where on Earth those planets are doing that for the individual, right? we can see where they're going to be particularly strong, where they're going to have things go easily, other places where they might have more trouble. And so astrolocation is really looking at where geographically is not just good for me to say live, locate myself, but even like knowing where are good places to travel for vacation or which places to avoid. Oh, and I can't count the number of times I've talked to someone and said, well, yeah, gee, if you go to this country, you know, you'll have your money stolen or you'll get food poisoning because you've got Rahu going right through there. On the other hand, you'll do really well in this other place because you've got, a, you know, say, a Jupiter line or something very good for the person going right through that place. People, again, if they're too... where that's more likely to happen anyway. <laughs> it's true enough, but... And obviously, it has to be practical, too. If you have a good line going through the middle of Mongolia, you're probably not going to move to Mongolia anyway because it would be impractical. But most people have some degree of freedom as to where they could live. I mean, even in the United States, we got, what, three different time zones plus Hawaii. Yeah. So, you know, if people aren't good on the East Coast, they may be good on the West Coast or vice versa, right? So they can figure that out or they find that out from the chart yeah. pretty easily. Yeah. I think we have four time zones. We have Pacific, Mountain, Central, and East in the, in the U.S., probably Canada. Right. Plus, plus Hawaii. Yeah, plus, plus Hawaii. Hawaii. Yeah. Let's talk about Dasha periods a little bit. Tell us what they are, and uh, then we, I might have a second question after okay. you tell us what they are. So the dashas, the, the way the dasha scheme arises, it gets back to the notion that we're born under a certain star. So you're born under a certain star, and that star that you're born under has a ruling planet. And whichever ruling planet that star has, that planet rules your birth. It rules the time that you're born. And because each of these cycles are fixed, like the dasha of Mars is always seven years, the dasha of Rahu is always 18 years, and then follows 16 years of Jupiter. This is a fixed thing, which totals 120 years, right? So it's a 120-year cycle. And um, everyone, everyone is somewhere in the 120-year cycle. The difference is the starting point depends on your star, where you're born, what star you're born under. So if, you, for example, if someone's born under a Mars star, then they'll have Mars right at birth, and, but they won't have all seven years of Mars because when they're born, the moon was partway through that star. So we're born partway through that seven-year period, right? So they'll have the remaining portion. After that, they'll have Rahu for 18 years, Jupiter for 16 years. So that's like you step, it's like a 120-year wheel and you step onto the wheel at the moment you're born and then just follow along the wheel after that. So the dashes are those cycles, right? So people come into different cycles and different cycles have different properties, qualities. And of course, the planets don't mean exactly the same thing for every person because depends on where they're placed in the chart. But typically, Rahu can be a time of more... Rahu, which is the north node, right? One of the eclipse points. Um, in Western astrology, they call it the ascending node, sometimes called the dragon's head. So under Rahu, for example, a person might have an awakening, <clears throat> spiritual experience, an awakening. But because it came under Rahu, it's it's very likely to have some kind of twist to it or that the, the mind is going to creep back in more more easily or you know it's not going to be like complete necessarily so the, the the kind of experiences one has in different cycles is you know is also determined by like what what planet is operating in which you know how how durable that experience will be so these cycles are always unfolding 
like let's say one is in a cycle, but you know, like let's say one's in a Jupiter cycle, which is a 16 year cycle. Well, just to know you're in Jupiter for 16 years doesn't tell you a lot because you know, that's a long period of time. But then within each cycle, there are sub cycles. So within Jupiter, there's Jupiter, Jupiter, then Jupiter, Saturn, Jupiter with every other planet. Then within Jupiter, Saturn, there's Jupiter, Saturn, Saturn, Jupiter, Saturn, Mercury. <laughs> so there's sub, 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 really sub, sub. So it gets, it? Down, it gets down to the fifth level. So basically at the fifth level, you're like practically day by day, something is changing. Yeah. So if you want to really get down to the specifics, you can really nail down you know, and that's how we can find out if the time birth is accurate, because if the time is accurate, things fit right down to the subtle level. Ah, Otherwise, they don't. Yeah. Right? It's kind of a big deal when you change Mahadashas, right? I mean, I've, yes. since, I, you know, since I married Irene, I think I've had a couple such changes, maybe. And um, yeah. it's, it can be quite turbulent as you make these changes. And sure enough, it sometimes has been, for me Not at least. No, she didn't cause it. Um, I probably <laughs> caused it myself. No, it, in fact, it is a big deal changing major cycles. Even if you're changing into a good cycle, still there's an energy shift. Something is shifting. The person's orientation is shifting. Yeah, and it's it requires you know. In fact, one of the one of the things we look at when we look at relationship compatibility, like for marriage, mm -hmm. one of the one of the things one of the red flags, let's say, is that in a in a couple's future life together, there shouldn't be major cycle changes at the same time, like within the same year. Uh, that's considered, that's considered going, right, through going, through, going through turbulence uh, at the same time. Like if one is going through turbulence, the other one is steady, they can support each other through their turbulent times. If they're both going through turbulence at the same time, it's considered a, a negative. You know? yeah, uh, and if and if they if they are matched up in that way, then every time there's a Mahadasha change, it's going to happen for both of them, you know, simultaneously, right? Because they, well, they all only, last only if the they're same. only if they're no only if they're in the same dasa. Right, right. So there could be a they could if they're both changing the Saturn to Mercury at the same time, then they'll always have the cycle change at the same time. Mm -hmm. But if one is going into Saturn at the same time, the other one's going into Venus, then that will coincide. But then Saturn and Venus are different lengths, so they won't coincide the next time. Irene and I were talking the other day, and she said that she heard that if you die, let's say you're halfway through your Mars Mahadasha, then when you're reborn, you're actually going to be at the same point halfway through where you, where you had died? No? No. Okay. No. There's no scientific evidence to, uh, to suggest that. Or even in the charts where we have the reincarnated person's chart, there are obvious signs that that person's reincarnation of the one before, but that Dasha thing doesn't quite work out. Okay. So there must be some intervening time in the loka where something is playing out. Here's a question from a listener. Uh, Kranti from Freehold, New Jersey asks, a lottery winner is often decided by a complex algorithm run by a supercomputer. If it is, well, actually it's usually decided by those little balls that come down, but maybe the generation of lottery numbers, he's, he means. Um, if it is true that the winner got it because of his karma, it makes me wonder just how complex the karma machinery could be, just by looking at how many things had to be set in place to make this, this event happen, or does it not work that way? It's true, it's very complex, and uh, I have been asked before to pick the lottery numbers, and I don't do that. Frankly, if I could do that, I, I wouldn't, yeah, I would already, probably wouldn't even need to do anything. Yeah, I actually think it's a misuse of the science, right. in fact. In fact, even if it is possible to do, I think, and you know, it gets back well, to actually, the whole like you said, like, where does Jotish so come about, from? You know, using Jotish to pick the lottery. His question oh, okay. is about 
you know, the, um, the, you know, the, just the way lottery. Why that? Why did that person? Yeah, win? the mathematics behind the choosing of lottery numbers by you know that, or or many other complex mathematical things, that there's a similar mathematics uh, or similarly complex, vastly more complex mathematics behind the, the karma of, of, of someone people. who's going to win the lottery. Right? Yeah. Or no, and or somebody anything. who's going to win the lottery that will be in their chart. Yeah. Like they'll they'll have that influence in their chart to win the lottery, mm -hmm. but um, see anything. I guess it comes back to that anything can be seen. The question is, will it be seen? Yeah. Like, will it be seen? Will will the will the divine allow it to be seen? You know, and that gets back to the this determining. You know, because even in astrology, you're playing with forces that are quite subtle and quite powerful, and what one astrologer sees another astrologer might not see i can give you an example of this there was a this is a true story from kerala there was a couple who went to an astrologer to get their charts matched for marriage and the astrologer looked at the chart and he was just absolutely horrified and he said no no don't don't do it don't get married and then they went away and then they went to his guru and the guru this astrologer's guru gave the blessing for them to get married. Then two weeks later, the astrologer was walking down the street and he saw a funeral procession. And on inquiring, he found out there were two coffins and it was this couple. So he went to his guru and said, you know, I saw death in the chart and that's why I told him not to get married. He said, but you told him to get married. So what gives? And the guru said, they were destined to die anyway. At least let them have two weeks of wedded bliss. Ah, that's interesting. <laughs> so it's like, what can be seen, what will be seen. Yeah. So, um, to my understanding, not only individuals have Jyotish charts that could be analyzed, but countries do, and perhaps a lot of other things. Companies, maybe. Um, companies have charts, yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe even towns or families or various... Um, configurations yeah. of individuals right yes that's, that's right that's called mundane astrology why do they call it mundane well it has to do with the world the world okay so the usa then has a, a jyotish chart and apparently we're in a dasha uh, a in rahu, a rahu. rahu cycle right it's a rahu cycle yes. yeah so how is it that a country has a chart what is it determined by like when the declaration of independence was signed or something was signed yes on 4th of july 1776 at, at i make in Philadelphia. well i make it i make it 6 25 p.m i used to i used to have a little bit different time but after 9 11 i corrected it mm -hmm. based on the event of 9 11 i corrected it to 6 25 p.m and boy does that fit perfectly because uh, in fact on october 19th 1929 they would have entered their saturn mahadasa mm -hmm. well saturn brings like the truth stock brings the reality. Crashed. Stock market crashed within two days and the Great uh -huh. Depression ensued. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. interesting. It fits that chart, yeah. Yeah. So um, so you've looked back at historical events. Uh, you know, yeah. 9-11, stock market worked out the exact birth time of the U.S., yeah. Yeah. And so now what do you see coming? I mean, things are a little crazy right now. Does that sort of jibe with the Rahu phase we're in? And what yeah. else do you oh, have? What yeah, else when, could you predict? Yeah, when Rahu is in the eighth house, then you... If a person has Rahu in the 8th house in their birth chart, then during the time of Rahu, they may act sort of irrationally, unpredictably, you know, as a, so when it's in a country's chart, the whole country may be in that sort of unpredictable, irrational kind of uh, state. Mm -hmm. uh, currently, the sub-period is Jupiter, 
and Jupiter's a highly beneficial force in the US's chart because the US chart has Sagittarius ascendant. So Jupiter's the ruler of the charts, it's highly benign, and Jupiter's always expansive. In fact, the Jupiter main period was running in the 20s, like the roaring 20s, right? It was this expansive Jupiter, right? But now it's the Rahu Jupiter, and Rahu Jupiter finishes in November of 2020, and then starts Rahu Saturn. So just in time for the next election, right. Rahu Saturn starting. Now it's not the same as Saturn Saturn, which was 1929, but it's definitely significant. So I'm expecting a downturn in the economy, uh, somewhat at least on par with 2008, mm -hmm. uh, happening in 2020 in the second half, maybe not exactly in November, because I think if something big is coming, probably there already have been signs of it beforehand by the summer probably. So I think right now it's Rahu Jupiter. So for the most part, there would be an expansive force. I had predicted in my annual forecast that the downturn, there would be a small downturn in October 2018 because it was Rahu Jupiter Saturn at the third level. Saturn always brings a correction. But the, the, the worst of that was basically over by Christmas, and so now it's basically in an upturn since Christmas, and for the most part will be a positive year. I'm predicting a good year for 2019 overall for the markets, even though the world seems to be in a bit of a turmoil, but uh, the U.S. economy is still going to look good at least. And what happens is when Jupiter is running, people have kind of euphoria, you know, they feel optimistic, even if they, even if all signs say they shouldn't be. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like it's about mass consciousness, and so when that euphoria turns to pessimism, like it will when Saturn comes in November 2020, then it's like it just goes, you know, the wind goes out of the sails and the market corrects. Hmm. So, if you have stocks, sell them before June 2020 would be my advice. Hmm. Do you actually do any stock trading yourself based upon this stuff? Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you ought to pick up a sideline as a stock advisor. <laughs> well, I do. I mean, you a lot of my clients, yeah, you're right. My clients a lot of them call me just for that financial advice. Hey, where should I put my money? What currency should I put it in now? <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> it's well, I, when I'm in my background is finance, so that's true, right? Yeah. I find it rather discouraging that um, things are going to get worse, or people are going to get pessimistic in November of 2020. Because I was kind of hoping someone would get elected that would make us more optimistic. Yeah, well, the, car, the, the karma of the country is like some, some correction has to happen, mm -hmm. you know, so... Hasn't it been happening? Um, <laughs> more correction. More correction, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, on this theme, you successfully predicted the elections of Obama and Trump uh, very early on in their campaigns. Yeah. Um, and from so, the chart. Yeah. From their charts, and maybe yeah. the country's chart as well. And I yeah. mean, so what else can you predict? I mean, do you, do you have any prognostications about the next presidential election? Well, I'll, I will publish that next year. <laughs> okay, a little too early for that. I, a little too early for that, but, um, but I, don't think, I don't think we're going to have a second term for Mr. Trump. Okay. Huh. <laughs> That's good, in my opinion. Um, okay, so I've gone through all the questions that I had written down here. And um, so I want to give like either listeners who are sending in questions the opportunity to send in any if they have if they have any or Irene to ask any more or you to say anything you want to say that we may not have brought up that you consider important. 
Well, we talked we talked a little bit about you know, and I think a lot of your listeners are interested in awakening, mm-hmm. and we talked you touched briefly on like awakening may occur in different and you know, under different kind of planetary influences, and also of course it's I think well understood that there's different intensities of awakening. Mm-hmm. Someone may have an awakening experience, and uh, you know have like a heightened awareness, or they may even like start seeing everything as one, but then the mind might creep back in. So they believe they're sort of at a place, but then there's there's still remnants, let's say, remnants of the mind, remnants of the ego that are at play. And so it's like, it's a, it's a tricky thing in that whole realm. I don't claim anything, but you know, people make certain claims about their state of awakening or realization. And I think a lot of it is um, it's a bit of a mind trap. It can be a bit of a mind trap. So I think the more clarity we can have, or the more real we can be about it, is good. You know, oh, if yeah. someone's really beyond, if someone's really in total wakefulness and they're beyond, and all the vasanas have been burned at the root, you know, which is like the full total awakening. Well, yeah, those people won't need to promote themselves because everyone will be coming to them. They'd be like, you know, Buddha or Jesus or, but somewhere in between, <laughs> the rest of the world. <laughs> finds its place yeah well it's an interesting point i mean there are all kinds of people who start teaching and sometimes gain big followers and right have all and kinds they may, of they may still have they may still have ego you know oh yeah well that's what i'm getting to that there's there have been all sorts of train wrecks where people yeah. have gotten very often their behavior i've had to take down a number of interviews yeah. of people who you know really started going off the, the rails so I guess you're so I think, saying... I think one of the things is that, you know, if people have an awakening experience, but then they don't integrate it, you know, integrate it properly through sadhana, then it just becomes, it can be just come another power trip. Yeah, and if they don't realize that there is integration yet to achieve... They think they've arrived. They think basically. they've arrived, they think they're finished. Um, they don't think it's beneath them to do sadhana, you know, because... Hey, we're already enlightened. Why should we need sadhana? <laughs> that kind of stuff um, causes problems. I think it causes a lot of problems. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so again, how would Jyotish help to circumvent this kind of problem? Well, I guess it gives you a reality check. So you, you can know. look at somebody's chart and say, "Well, you may, you may not be as enlightened as you think you are, buddy." Or you should, <laughs> or what? Well, I was thinking more in terms of people who are attached to particular teachers, uh-huh. you know, like if we looked at their interaction with that teacher's chart and say, like, what's really going on, you know, yeah. are you putting your eggs in the wrong basket because, you know, maybe the maybe the person you are idolizing or putting up on pedestal isn't all there. Yeah, and so you would determine that by the juxtaposition of their chart and their teacher's chart? Yeah, presumably the teacher's chart would be available, not mm-hmm. all of them are. Right. Some people, some people keep their, their birth data very secret. Mm-hmm. But I would say they that, were available. Would you be able to yeah. determine, or you know, with some degree of accuracy, whether a teacher, absolutely, had really solidly arrived or, or yeah. had yet to? They're, or if they're putting on a show. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's clear in the chart. Yeah. I mean, my philosophy with that gap is just that everybody's a work in progress. Um, yeah. Pretty much everybody. We all are. Yeah. Well, I don't know if there's any, and that's what we used to say, you know, interviews with that's awakened, why we're here. awakened yeah. people, but we changed it to awakening people because it seems yeah. the process never ends. The continuum, yeah. yeah. Not black and white. Huh. 
Yeah. Um, so Irene sent over a question, and maybe we've just covered this, but in case we haven't, would, would, would such a person as you describe as fully enlightened or in a very high state have that very clearly reflected in their chart? I would say their chart would show the promise of that, and then their, their, how they exhibit to the world would be the proof of it. That's a good answer. Right? Yeah. You know, because at a certain point, at a certain point, the chart really stops acting. I mean, yes, there's still karma at the physical level, like we said at the beginning. There's still karma at the physical, but the person's completely beyond the effect of that mm -hmm. in terms of their where they're at, in terms of their consciousness. So there is no one left. There is no ego left in that case. So there's just clarity. There's just being. There's just being and just being and happening. Mm -hmm. And I think when you meet people like that, it's... Don't need a Jyotishi to know which way, <laughs> whether someone's in that state. That's a line from Dylan, in case you don't know. Oh. Don't need a weatherman <laughs> to know which way the wind blows. Right. He didn't react. I thought maybe I hadn't heard the line. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, is there anything else? Irene or Prasanan or anybody, um, is there anything else you, you want to cover? Speak now or forever oh, hold your peace. Oh, yeah, let's cut. Let's, well, yeah, anything else you want to say, but let's cover your. We talked a little bit about your services, um, but let's go through them again just so people have an idea what the options are and whether. Yeah, you know, sure. Well, most people consult, the first time they consult, most people consult by phone or Skype. And that's just because there's too much to explain in a written form. So they would have a reading. Most people do a, like a one hour, what we call a one hour full life reading. But it's not like it, because people write, say, oh, should I have an annual reading because it's near my birthday? It can be whatever. So it can be a combination. The, the one hour can be a combination of current as well as life patterns. You know, it's basically the focus is wherever that person is. Um, most interested in understanding what's going on. So a lot of people just have questions about what's going on or they want to ask about their family members. They want to ask about their children, you know. So fine, you can ask about anybody. There's not like, it's not fixed, like it's got to be about just this, this chart, you know, it can be about people around you. So that's the reading. And, and then sometimes it arises that people might have a question. They don't really need a reading, but they're just facing a decision like, gee, now I'm going to... Uh, I've, I've got these. Uh, I've got this choice. I'm going to buy. I'm going to take one of these two jobs. Which is better? Well, they don't necessarily need a reading for that. They could just look at it from a point of view and single question by email, or mohurtas. Someone might want to know. Okay, we've decided to get married. We're going to get married sometime between, say, April and June. Find us the best date and time for that location, for it to happen. That's what a mohurta so that, is. Like, a mohurta is. Yeah. 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 Or I've met someone, I want to know how compatible we are, so the relation compatibility comes in there. So this, this, those are the kind of the way it goes. But most people, yeah, most people just start out with a conversation and then take it from there. Do you ever get bored with this or is it endlessly fascinating for you? I never get bored with this. Yeah. It really is just the most amazing thing. It's much better than corporate finance. <laughs> Yeah, I feel about that way about this. I mean, sometimes people say, oh, listen, there's, there's been so many hundreds of interviews, it's really getting boring, but not for me. Uh, it is really endlessly fascinating. And everyone is different. Everyone is unique in some way. So these things, we talk about the principles and the, yeah, the principles are the same. You know, the principle of Saturn, the principle of the planets is the same, but how they manifest is unique in some way for every person hmm. in a different way. You know, that's like, the beauty of it yeah like really a picture 
of what's going on. I remember Nancy Reagan consulted some astrologer, and she got a lot of flack for that. It was like a big brouhaha. Yeah, it's a powerful, I mean, Vedic astrology is, is the most, I think, the most powerful prognostication technique around on the planet. Definitely, there's some, there's ample proof of it. I mean, yeah, people say, where's the proof? Well, you know, I mean, just look at the look at the track record of people who do predict accurately. This can't all be just coincidence. Yeah. I used to think it was just coincidence because I grew up in a very scientific, rational, logical, Western mindset. And I just, when I first heard about Australia, that's ridiculous. But then when I went to India and Amma told me to study it, it was like, Wow, it is scientific. This is great. Like it's all based on rules. I mean, I'm used to rules. Astronomy is all about rules. Accounting is all about rules. And now we got all these rules of astrology. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, or bring it on. You know, as always, mathematically minded, and it is very mathematical. So it's funny that it seems so different than finance. But actually, the guy I studied with in in Delhi, who I wrote those journal articles for K N Rao, he was the auditor general for India before he retired. So he's a finance guy. Yeah. And then he runs he runs the Bharata Vidya Bhavan, the biggest Jyotra school in the world. Hmm. Interesting. And on the weekends, you know. So. <laughs> yeah. So you use a computer program to help you calculate the chart. Could there be? Of course. Do you have like in your in your dreams uh, envision a computer program that could go way beyond just the simple calculation of the chart and help you figure out all kinds of stuff that you now have to use your own mind to figure out? It's a good question. Like the computer programs when they started out were just put basic calculations in. And then as the programs got more advanced, they got more and more refined and they brought in more and more things, you know, so there's more calculations you can see. I think one of the, the, one of the great strengths of computers that would have been impossible before computers, I think, is the whole idea of birth time rectification. Because you know how when you're in a particular cycle, like when you're in a cycle and a sub-cycle and a sub-sub-cycle all the way down to the like nth degree, those change if your birth time changes. They all change instantly. But modern programs allow you to see what would be the cycle, sub-cycle, sub-cycle, etc. for every single minute, for every single second, mm. just by zooming in and out of a particular window. And then you can narrow down and find out what the person's birth time is. You would never do those calculations if you had to do it by hand, ever. Yeah. Wouldn't be possible. And so, so there's been a real blessing. The computer is a real blessing. To, yeah, the computer, pro, well, you still need to apply your intelligence, right. but the, the, the facility of doing the calculations is there in the computer. But as far as the interpretation of it, I think it's, it's um, I mean, the program I use has canned interpretations, which I don't ever give people because they're way too general and they don't really apply because they're they're like little pieces, like little pieces of a puzzle, but not the big picture, right? So if you look at anyone's chart, there's going to be combinations for poverty. There's going to be combinations for kingship. Well, are they going to be a pauper or a king? Well, you have to look at the thing in synchronicity. You can't just look at one thing. Oh, that's in your chart. Well, maybe there's things that cancel it, right? Yeah. So you have to look at the big picture. And I don't know if there's software. There's certainly no software yet that can see the big picture. And maybe maybe it's something that's beyond computer program. Maybe not. Maybe, I mean, when AI comes, maybe some AI program will come along to... Do better than modern Jyotishis in predicting. <laughs> it's true, and it might actually be self-improving as it learns. It learns, yeah. Yeah. Do you use that software that's written by the guy in Fairfield? 
Prashra's light. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Michael lives Bender. Just a yeah. few blocks from us. We often walk by his house when we walk. Well, say dogs. hi. Say hi to him for me. I'm. I'm wondering. I'm wondering what should I upgrade to version. I think he has a new version. I'm using version seven still. So. Okay. But you know, the reason I'm using that software, I'll tell you quite honestly, um, because I had this software that came to the ashram in 1992 uh, in Kerala from a local company in Ernakulam that made this very basic calculation software. And then I was touring with Amma in Chicago, and in, I think it was 1994 or 5, I was sitting there at the Chicago program, and Michael Bender came by, and he knew me, he'd heard of me, and he gave me five, remember floppy disks? Yeah, yeah. He gave me five floppy disks with Prashra's light on it. Oh, cool. And I loaded them, and I've used them ever since. And every single chart I've ever created since then, since like more than 24 years, is in one zip file, one database. Wow. And they all work on that. And he's upgraded the software course many times since then, but the basic charts... I've got all those charts saved from like that time onward. Cool. That, so when people consult, they can always, I can always pick up their chart from before we left off. I hope you have them backed up as well. <laughs> oh, very well. <laughs> Carbonite yeah. or whatever. Um, Irene sent over another question. She says, um, accuracy is so important and can greatly vary with different Jyotish consult consultants. Should people not be wary of that? I think when you go to an astrologer, I mean, you're, you're going to be getting they're, you're going to get a reading based on their background, experience, you know, how much they've seen, how much they've understood, who their teacher was, you know, so it, it varies, right? And a lot of the, see, a lot of the, like you said, we talk about the scriptures, like the scripture of, you know, Prashra, right? That, that, even the scripture was initially meant to be only passed down by word of mouth from guru to disciple. And then the Sanskrit language was actually codified because the rishis could see that in the future there'd be loss of knowledge. So they wrote things down. Before that, there was nothing written down in India. So they wrote things down. So we have it written down in Sanskrit. But even then, they didn't want it to be abused. So they wrote it down incompletely so that you would still need a, a guru to like bring out the meaning, right? Because yeah. Sanskrit's a very subtle language, right? So they wrote it sort of with, with gaps mm. so that you couldn't just take it and abuse the knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. So it's always meant to be passed on in a sort of a secret way. Mm -hmm. And even now in India, there's there's families have their little secrets where they pass them on generation to generation. These little tricks, these little mm -hmm. techniques that you know aren't part of the general mainstream pool of knowledge in Jyotish, you know. Um, and 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 they and they seem to work. You know, I mean, these things seem to work in in that context. So. Yeah, accuracy depends on the background. It's a vast science. Nobody has a 100% picture of it. You know, I've been doing it for 27 years now, and I don't claim to have a 100% accurate view of it, but I've seen a lot of charts. Mm -hmm. A lot of charts. Yeah, really. Huh. Are there certain things that you don't feel comfortable telling people, like when they're going to get enlightened or when they're going to die or something like that? Those are the two. Those, those are the those two. Those two, okay. Those two, yeah. yeah. Enlightenment is not an answerable question because when you're enlightened, there's no one left to ask, will I be enlightened? Right. So the person asking isn't even around to enjoy their own enlightenment. So what's mm -hmm. the point? Like who actually wants to know? Yeah. And death is just too difficult a topic uh, for people to get their head around that there could be a moment when, you know, that's supposed to happen. I, I think it, it does slip out sometimes. Like I was doing a reading for somebody 
whose mother was terminally ill and the doctors gave her six weeks to live. And this was in July. And I said, no, she's going to live till March, sometime in March the following year uh-huh. from the chart. I just It just came out. Right. And she actually died exactly on the day that I had said. And the, the woman came back later and said she was so grateful because all this healing happened because they had time to like really heal old things in the family. Everyone came to see her and... So, but normally it's not a it's normally it's not a good topic. Yeah, uh, death, death and enlightenment. Yeah, I think I have heard you say things like, "Well, you're going to have a long life. You'll live into your 90s or whatever." But you wouldn't say somebody you're going to die next Thursday. That, or... I wouldn't get that. No, definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, even if someone was going to die next Thursday, I probably wouldn't see it because I wouldn't be looking for it. Really? Yeah, Don't it's not like everything. Jump out at you somehow. I guess they jump out if they're supposed to. Hmm. And if they're not, then they don't. Well, but wait a minute. I mean, if something that momentous is going to come up in a week or two, and you're, you're doing a reading, wouldn't any momentous thing in a person's life, anything really major, somehow become evident? Well, there are always these marika periods. There's always these marika. These marika periods come from time to time. So marika period means a period where there's potential for death, uh-huh. right? For that to actually be the one, the, the time when actually the person does die, mm-hmm. all these other factors have to also be there. So if you suspected something, you might go and look for all the other factors. But I mean, if you're talking to a young person, you're not going to be suspecting that, oh, I should look for all these factors. I mean, it wouldn't be on your mind. Yeah, yeah. There's some guy... Unless you had some suspicion. I mean, if someone is terminally ill, then you'd be looking for the factors because, you know, but there'd be, there'd be evidence that it could happen soon, right? But yeah. if there's no evidence that it could happen soon, then you wouldn't be looking for those combinations either. I mean, you would just, you know, it's because you can't, nobody can see everything at once. Sure. There's some guy here in town who predicts that Trump is going to die of a heart attack. He said it's, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Uh, do you consider it irresponsible to make predictions like that? I, I don't think it's. I don't think that's a good way to use the science. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I, I. I think that's wrong. Yeah. 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 I, it, it almost sounds like you know somebody who says a thing like that is sort of has a political agenda, and well, that that brings up an interesting point too. Do you find yourself completely objective, or do you ever feel you're getting swayed a little bit by your own proclivities or opinions about things well if i had if i had my own opinions i, I mean i'd look 99 percent of all astrologers did not pick trump to win that's true yeah the last election i was unbiased looking at the chart saying well he can't lose i mean as much as i may not want to say that i, I couldn't not say that because that's what the chart said look the country's in rahu period rahu makes you act irrationally it makes you go away from the status quo well, if you compare the two candidates, he's clearly away from the status quo. Then Clinton's chart, she was in a period, she was at the day of the election, she was in the worst possible phase. She was in exactly the same kind of negative phase that, uh, what's his name, Tony Blair was in on the day of the Brexit vote. He couldn't win either. Like if he had consulted, he wouldn't have had the Brexit vote that day because he just, he couldn't win that day. So she couldn't win then the, the country's going to reject the status quo. Then Trump's chart was showing he was about to enter his Jupiter period, which like gives him kingship. So, okay, well, <laughs> there was like, there's so many. I mean, how did anybody even think that she could win by looking, it, honestly looking at the chart? But I think people were swayed by their own personal bias. Sure. And so therefore didn't predict. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good answer. It's an interesting answer. So um, you just have to, like a doctor or like any other profession, you yeah. have to just sort of put aside your personal biases and tell it like it is. Like it is, yeah. <laughs> as gently as possible. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. Um, how much do you um, use Jyotish to look at your own life and, and your wife's life? Do you kind of like check things quite frequently or, or whatever? Yeah. I don't obsess about my chart. I know I know what cycle's going on, but um, yeah. it's like I don't like really. check my chart every time I go out to make sure it's like okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it, I don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> I know it's okay somehow. I, I'm living the chart. I don't really, you know, need it. Yeah. Good. In that sense, you know. And of course, if something major is happening, then, you know. I would, of course, pay attention to what's going on in my chart. But like, even the fact that we live here now on the West Coast, I mean, we were actually looking at houses in Niagara Falls. Oh, yeah, we actually made a couple of offers. We made a couple of offers on houses in Niagara Falls, and it just never felt, never came through. And then it just, well, somehow the universe wanted us to be on the West Coast. So, so here we are, <laughs> and we're glad, you know. But just like, but I mean, if I had, if I had been serious about my chart, I might have, perhaps, avoided you know, a couple of years of searching in the wrong place for us. I don't know. Yeah. Huh. But maybe it's just something I had to go through. Huh. Well, you're getting better weather there than you would be in Niagara before, Falls at the moment. Before the, before the, yeah, before this house came along. So anyway, yeah. we're waiting for the right house. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you, Prasannan. Uh, I've really enjoyed talking to you. It's a bit of a, a stretch for me to talk about, to engage somebody in a conversation about Jyotish. Oh, it's all good. It's all, it's all one anyway. Yeah. So. It often sounds like baseball to me, you know, like life. such and such is on first and so and so is on second. Mars <laughs> <laughs> is in the fourth. <laughs> yeah, right. Base is loaded. What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> I've enjoyed it and I've learned something. I hope that my audience has, and um, you'll probably get a lot of people getting in touch with you. Been a pleasure. So, just uh, to wrap it up, I'll be linking to Prasnan's website and uh, from his page on batgap.com. And. Um, this is an ongoing series, as you know. If you'd like to be notified of future ones, you can subscribe on YouTube. Um, you could also subscribe to our little email newsletter that we send out whenever a new one is posted. You could do both. Um, if you listen to the podcast, it would be great if you were to leave a, a, a review on Apple iTunes, preferably a five-star review if you feel motivated to do so. That kind of helps um, the popularity of it on iTunes. Um, Next week, I'll be speaking with a fellow named Mark Gober about a topic that's very dear to me, about, uh, that I, inspires me and interests me a lot, about um, whether consciousness is fundamental to the universe or merely a product of the brain. And he's written a book all about that, which I've already read because I couldn't wait to read it. So I think that's going to be a lively conversation. And there are many other interesting ones coming up. There's an upcoming interviews page on batgap.com, and if you want to see what's scheduled, just look there. We, we update that all the time. So thanks for listening or watching, and thank you again, Prasanan. Namaste. Namaste. It's been good talking with you, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>